not only our salvation, but for our daily walk and for our sense of understanding and purpose in this world. Uh, Lord, your love, your love envelops us, and uh, Lord, you draw us close to you. We give you thanks and praise. And I pray, Lord, that we would uh, be able to see clearly not only that need, but also that response to your grand offering of the power and the, the presence sense of purpose that you give and only you can give. We thank you. We honor you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Um, it's great to be with you all again. And uh, like he said, this is my last week here. Several of you asked uh, about my books. I got two of them here and they're back there. And he said, go pick one up and give us $5, okay, for each book. Um, yeah, he was being a little more gracious than I was, so, than I am. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's uh, been a joy for Marlene and I to be here. We do truly um, appreciate and love many of you and, and have gotten to know several of you for the first time. It's been wonderful, and so thank you. We will pray for you, and you may actually see us in the future sometime. We might pop in in future years, but uh, it's been a delight to be with you. I actually heard for the first time since May... I heard from James this morning that he said, you know, thank you, and it's your last Sunday, et cetera, and I thought, oh, that's good. He's alive. So, so he is coming back because I can't be here next week, so that's, that's good. That's good. Praise the Lord. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you to all of you, and I know that, uh, that the Lord has got great things in store for the church. We're, th we're thankful. Um, so I want to talk to you something about, I want to kind of bust a myth, and I want to kind of redirect our thinking a little bit. And I got to tell you, I didn't, uh, didn't plan any of this with, with, uh, with Tim, but Tim just kind of uh, planned some music that fits right into what I would be saying. So there's the common say sayings that we hear a lot in our culture um, through the years is, you can do anything you put your mind to. Um, there's nothing that's impossible for a person who you know, strives ahead, or uh, don't let anyone tell you that you can't do something. Uh, you, you get the idea, the drift. Um, there's nothing too hard for those who put the effort forward, et cetera, those kinds of things. Um, that is, at best, hyperbole. At best, hyperbole. In other words, it's an exaggeration that everybody knows. I think everybody here knows that you cannot jump over the moon without any assistance just from a standing standstill jump, right? Uh, you can't because you want to and will yourself to be. Uh, you can't be a butterfly, right? You can't make yourself a butterfly. Now, there were some ladies last night over at, uh, over at Rosalina's house. They were acting like butterflies. So they were women who were kind of floating along. But, uh, um, but you can't become one. And there are a lot of things that you can't know. You're not omnipotent. So you can't do all things. Is there an acknowledgement of that? We, not anyone, there's not a person in here who can do everything. Uh, that is a sign to one being only, and that is God. Okay, thank you for that. At least we, we got that clear. So um, you cannot on your own know everything. That's omniscience. That's what God is. God knows everything. He knows all the past, the future, etc. And you can't know that. Even the most prophetic person among us uh, God gives prophecies that are like windows into certain elements, uh, certain things from the past, certain things in the future, etc. But uh, there's no person that's known everything. And you're not omnipresent. You can't be everywhere all at one time. You just can't do that. So it, it's just a, a, like I said, it, at best it's hyperbole. 
when people do that, I know what the motive is. The motive is to keep people from thinking that they, they have limitations that they shouldn't have. Are you with me? They, people say, you can do you know, anything you want to, or there's nothing impossible, all that, because we don't want people to uh, stop from moving forward. So I think the motive is good. The motive is altruistic when people say that stuff. The, f- the fact is, it's just a flat lie. It's a lie. And the Bible addresses that There's, uh, in a lot of ways. And I think when we uh, walk through some of the scriptures, we'll kind of see why it addresses that and why it's extremely important for us to know that you can't do everything you put your mind to. In fact, you can't do a lot of the things that you would like to do. And we'll talk about why it's important for us spiritually to know that, to understand that with clarity as we go on. But I'm going to give you some examples just so you know that there are some people, great people in the Bible, that, uh, that knew that there were specific limits that they had. They acknowledged those, but that didn't mean they weren't able to accomplish marvelous, wonderful, glorious things that are almost unimaginable you know, from our perspective. And so I'll give you some examples. So Christy, if you want to flash up the first uh, scripture, uh, let me set this up uh, first. So take it off, because they're going to start reading. I know them. I've gotten to know you over this summer. You're going to be reading ahead. You're those students that cheat a little, don't you? Okay. So, so here's a story in, uh, in Genesis chapter 41. And it's about Joseph. And we know Joseph was a great man. He was used to the Lord, etc. And uh, his brothers didn't like him. And so they ended up selling him into slavery because it seemed like he was a, a little bit presumptuous of his own contribution that all of them were ultimately going to bow down before him and that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, I, I've known guys like that. So, um, so anyway, they ended up selling him into slavery or with a Midianite caravan. The caravan ended up going into Egypt and, uh, and he ended up aspiring to, in a sense, a really great position. Uh, God's favor was upon him. He became a, um, an assistant to uh, Potiphar who was an assistant to Pharaoh so he became great. But the problem was is uh, he was falsely accused of some impropriety by Potiphar's wife, and as a result of that, he was thrown in prison. And he, while he was in prison, the Lord gave him a, gave him a specific vision um, of two people that had had dreams that didn't know what those dreams were. And so he prophetically talked about this, uh, the baker to, the, to, to Pharaoh, that there was a basket on his head. And it, without going into too much uh, detail, he, he said it was a predict, he predicted that he was going to die because, um, you know, Pharaoh was going to be displeased with him, et cetera, and he was going to be killed at that very time. And he was. And the other guy, the cupbearer to the king, saw himself uh, holding a king, uh, a, a cup, excuse me, before the king, and uh, Pharaoh, the king, was uh, the person who ended up restoring him. As Joseph said, you will be restored to your position as you were before. So he prophetically said something pretty powerful. Um, now, he got stuck in prison, and the cupbearer said, hey, I'm going to remember you when I get out of here, and I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to speak on your behalf to get you out, etc. But he forgot. You know, a lot of people are self-serving. And he forgot, and he left him in there. And so, so Joseph continued to remain in prison until uh, Pharaoh ended up having a dream, but nobody can interpret it. It says, none of the magicians or astrologers, or those were the two groups of people that they perceived at that time, or wise people, wise men, uh, could answer the issue of the king. It tells us that in, in chapter 8. That's not up here, but that's in uh, chapter 41 as well. And so 
uh, he was a little dismayed, wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen to this, but um, when uh, the cupbearer remembered all of a sudden, hey, there is somebody that I know, and he's really good at this kind of thing, and, uh, and his name's Joseph, and he's in prison. Well, Pharaoh brought him out, and this is when, when Joseph, Joseph was brought before the king, uh, he told him his dream, and we know from the story as we follow it through that Joseph ended up trans, translating what that dream was. There, was. there were seven fat cows, and there were seven sleek cows, kind of came up out of, the, out, out of uh, the river, and the Nile River, and they came up and consumed the fat ones, and, and there was something uh, secondary to that, and that was seven stocks, healthy stocks of grain uh, that were fresh and, and looked full and vibrant, um, were eaten up by these seven stalks that had been scorched by the wind, and they looked... So, in other words, the weak was eating up the strong, and, uh, and so he ends up predicting what's going to happen. There's going to be seven very uh, wealthy years, but those are going to be consumed by seven years of famine, and so the king said, well, what are we going to do? And he said, here's what I would do if I were in that role, so he put him in that role. So he went from prisoner to answering only to Pharaoh. Are you, are, are you familiar with that story? Okay, about nine of you are. Okay, all right, <laughs> let's, uh, let's then go. This is in the middle of that story. This is when he's called out of prison, um, and Pharaoh is eager to know what he has to say. So he says, Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought from prison. After he shaved and changed his clothes, which I'm sure Pharaoh was glad he did, uh, he went in and stood before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night. Um, and no one here can tell me what it means, but I have heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. It's beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. And uh, so in, that, in those verses, um, there's another version. I think it's the New Living Version, but I can't remember exactly which version, it, that, that he said, I can't. Say it with me. I can't. That's Joseph. Joseph is a pretty cool guy. He's one of our heroes in the Bible. And he said, contrary to our culture, I can't. But he didn't stop there. What did he say? God can. God can. Um, I'm not able to do it. He wanted to go on record of saying, if you're looking to me for the answers uh, to your dream or to your life or anything else, I cannot provide that for you. But I know someone who can, and it's God. And he goes on and tells him, he, he processes through. In fact, Joseph is calling somebody right now just to let him know that that's what he did. Or somebody's phone is going off. Okay, um, so I can't, but God can is essentially what he was saying uh, to the king. Now, he, did, did he have the prophetic gift? Yes. Did he think that it came from himself? No. Um, did he know exactly what to do to prepare? Did he have the architectural skill and the foresight on his own to be able to develop the plan to store grain for enough for the entire country for seven years? No, he didn't. But he served God, and God had given him wisdom to know exactly how to process that through. And he was very clear to put credit and ability where credit and ability were due. That's what he said. Somebody's, somebody's really insistent. They're going to call you. Okay, uh, let's move on. So we got, oh, no, no, stop there. I was going to jump ahead. I don't want to do that. Christy's back there like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Um, so 
you've got another guy who's a really a great guy in the New Testament. In fact, he's one of the very few people we don't see any sign or hint of sin in his life. We don't know anything that he did other than righteous stuff. I'm sure he's a sinner just like you and I are, but uh, he was um, highly esteemed by everybody. His name's Daniel, and he's a prophet. It's a little bit later in the Bible. And uh, Daniel did a lot of things that were very notable. Well, um, before he kind of got, the thing that got his reputation going was this particular episode. And Nebuchadnezzar had been a king. He was in his second year of being king over Babylon. And uh, you can find that story in Daniel chapter 2. We'll look at a a couple verses here in a few moments. But on our way there, uh, Nebuchadnezzar went one step farther, more difficult than what Pharaoh had said hundreds of years before to, to uh, the, the enchanters and, the, and uh, the wise men and all that kind of thing. But it's the same class of people, uh, essentially, that um, Nebuchadnezzar tells them something a little harder. He doesn't tell them what the dream is and ask somebody to interpret it. He says, just so I know nobody's trying to trick me, um, I want you, I, and he called all the uh, it says the magicians, the enchanters, the diviners, the astrologers, and the wise people, called them all together and said, if you can't come and tell me what my dream was, that's mind reading. That's not just prophetically knowing. If you can't tell me what my dream was and then interpret it, then you're all going to be killed. And uh, so it tells us two specific groups of those people came and represented the whole group and they said, uh, no person can do this. This has never been asked of anybody before. We can't know what your mind is. Just tell us the dream, and, uh, and then we will be able to interpret it for you. And he said, you're stalling. You're buying time. He said, you're going to all die unless someone can, uh, and can tell me what my dream was and then un- unveil it. Well, Daniel heard about this, and Daniel said, you know, tell King Nebuchadnezzar not to kill everybody. Um, He prayed. He first prayed, and it tells us a marvelous passage in there, right around verses uh, 16, 18 through about 24. Uh, He ends up telling the people, uh, or praying, and God made it clear to him that he could tell Nebuchadnezzar, not the people, but he could tell Nebuchadnezzar what what the dream was that he had in his mind. And it was a very elaborate dream. Pharaoh had this dream, and that he had there was this statue, and it had a gold head, and it had a silver chest, and it had a bronze belly and legs, and it had uh, uh, feet that were mixed with iron and clay. So you had these, these multiple composite things of this, of this. So it's very specific, if you follow. Well, Daniel went to him, and when Nebuchadnezzar called him with this impossible task, this is what he said. He said, the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And here's what he said. You would think that he had read something about Joseph. He said, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king uh, the mystery he has asked about. But he's not done yet. He said, but there is a God. Why don't you say that with me? But there is a God. He said, I can't, but there is a God. But there is a God who in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will happen in days to come. Your dream 
and the visions that passed through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. And he went on and described what I was telling you just a moment ago. And just like Joseph, he ended up being esteemed to a very high place to where there was no one, none of the satraps or the governors, uh, the provincial leaders under Nebuchadnezzar were higher than Daniel. Daniel was the highest in the land except for the king. And again, he's Jew. And uh, he was not somebody that was uh, national with them. In both cases, did uh, the people accomplish what had been requested? The answer is yes. Did they take credit for it? The answer is no. They never said, I can. They said, no one can. They said, I can't. Those were the words used. One says, uh, one says specifically, uh, there is a God that reveals mysteries, and then this one, it's, uh, but there is a God. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and will give, uh, in, in the first case, will give the, the, uh, the Pharaoh what, uh, what he's asking for. In each case, there's a better statement than I can. And I'll talk about why in just a few moments, but I don't want to stop with, uh, let's, let's go up the chain a little bit, shall we? Actually, let's go all the way to the top of the chain if we can. And I'm going to set up this by telling you the story of what John chapter 5 is about. So Jesus, in John chapter 5, at the beginning, there's a man who's laying by water, and he's crippled. He's not able to get in the water when water is troubled and uh, when it's disturbed. And there was a belief that if people would get in this water, they'd be healed. But he was always the last guy in because he was crippled. He wasn't able to get in, and, be, and it was always the first person, supposedly, by lore, that uh, would get in the water that would be healed. So, you know, he's kind of out of luck. So he's been there, you know, many, 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 many years and unable to get in the water and be healed. And Jesus asked him point blank if he wanted to be healed, and uh, Jesus ended up healing the man. And, but the day he did it on was the Sabbath. And the religious leaders believed that uh, the Sabbath was not made for work, and they believed miracles were work, and so they were so legalistic that they would rather a person suffer than be healed and it be perceived as somebody's doing labor on the Sabbath. And so they accused him of several things. And when Jesus came back, he's talking not just to the Pharisees and the leaders, etc. It it's a kind of amorphous speech. We don't know exactly who he's speaking to, precisely. It's not just the disciples, presumably, but he's telling people just to kind of let them know what his position is on this stuff. And he's letting them know that God has a higher order, that he's going to want us to do things that are according to the will of the Father, as he refers to his Father several times, about nine times in this passage. But I just clipped out the beginning and the end of his explanation of why he did what he did. And, uh, and if, in fact, if you have a Bible and you looked in it, you would see verse 19 would be the beginning of this speech he gives, and verse 30 is the very last verse. And this is what they say. This is Jesus. This isn't Daniel. We're no longer talking about Joseph. This is Jesus, who is what? He's God. He's God incarnate. He's God in the flesh. He says, Jesus gave them that, this answer. Verily, I, I tell you the truth, or, or, or truly I tell you, that the Son can do nothing by himself. What did he say? What? The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, 
the Son also does. Now, we're not going to read all the verses in between, but he goes on and talks about his relationship with the Father, and he wants to make sure that his will is right in step. He probably had the power to do this stuff. He just wants to make, there's, make sure that there's very clear alignment with the Father and what the Father wants accomplished. And so he says, he doesn't say the Son of Man won't do anything unless he sees the Father. He says the Son of Man can do nothing. In other words, Jesus, of all people, says, I can't, but God can. I can't unless, in a sense, I'm in a relationship with God. So at the end, he uses the same line. It's after he says a lot of great teaching. You ought to read this sometime. It's in the Bible. It's really good. So uh, (laughs) at the very end of this treatise, he says this, by myself, I can do nothing. He comes back and repeats it, just in case we're not clear. I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus once again says, I can't do anything by myself. I don't do that. Uh, I don't judge by myself. I only judge as the Father. That comes out a little more clearly in chapter 7. Um. So I want to hit pause for a minute. So our culture says you can do anything you put your mind to. No, you can't. We and we know it's hyperbole, don't we? I mean, I just I could we could sit here and go around and ask every person, what can you not possibly do? And we could all come up with stuff. So why does the culture do that? I understand the altruistic sense in which our culture wants people to not not uh, restrict themselves or demure in some way, or feel like because other people have said, you know, women can't do this, or men can't do this, or minorities can't do this, or poor people can't do this, we want to raise everybody up a little bit, right, to a better level, and so we use that kind of verbiage. The problem is, is we're living in a society that's been told that over and over and over and over again. You can fix it, you can do this, just put your mind to it, and so we've got the highest suicide rate we've ever had. Did you know one in every four people in America are depressed? One in every seven are clinically recognized as depressed and taking medication for it. What does that sound like? That sounds like a whole society of people that are told you can do everything. And then when they can't, what happens? The world crashes in. And the the church has bought into it. I've heard that kind of stuff all the time. And as a result, we got the same problems with people in the church because, you, you know, what, what are the implications of, what are the implications of, I can do everything? What, what's our faith in? It's in itself instead of God. Once you place your faith there, you're done. Put a fork in it. You're done. Because your faith is misplaced. What happens to prayer? Do you know the average American Christian prays 90 seconds or less per day? Why? Because we're told we can do it. That means what's the role of prayer? Don't need it. Don't need faith, because uh, I can do it, right? Don't need prayer. I know I'm preaching to the choir. I'm not mad. I'm animated, because I'm trying to undo what is pandemic even in the church because the rate of depression and suicide in the church isn't that far behind, doesn't lag that far behind society because of these silly, silly, altruistic motive. It's hyperbole and we all know it, but it's a lie. 
We can do everything because what it does is it displaces God from the place that only God can inhabit. So I've had people come to me, and I know somebody might come to me afterwards, and so let's just cut to the chase. So some people will use, there's one verse everybody uses, and they unfortunately they contract the verse to say what the verse doesn't say. In fact, say just the opposite. The Apostle Paul was speaking to the Philippians at one point in time, and in chapter 4, starting in verse 10, he said, I'm content in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of being content. Whether I'm well-fed and I have plenty or I'm in need and hungry. And he said, I've learned that secret. He said, it's not, it's not important for you necessarily to help me with my needs, but he said, it's so good that you did. And so he's, he's thanking them for the assistance that they gave him when he, was, uh, when he was in trouble and in prison as he writes this letter. But he, So he postscripts that of saying, I have the ability, I can be at peace and enjoy, I can live in joy whether I'm well-fed or hungry. And then he says this, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And here, here is evidence that the church is bought into the lie of the culture. Because when people contract, there's two halves to that sentence. And you know what everybody jumps on? In fact, most people don't even finish the sentence. What do they say? I can do all things. Where's the emphasis? I. I. No, it's I. When we contract it, when we take that first part, Jesus isn't even in it. God's not even in it. I can do all things. By the way, he was being very explicit about his ability to be content. That's what he was talking about. He wasn't saying, I can jump to the moon. He wasn't saying, I could become a lizard if I wanted to. He's not saying, I'm all-knowing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, in my circumstance, I don't have to be rich to be happy. I don't have to... To, I'm not going to despair if I'm poor. I can be content in every circumstance. And th- it's in that context he says, I can do all things. But then he postscripts it by saying, through him who gives me strength. In other words, he's saying, I can't, but God can. It's not my strength that does it. And so what we do is we contract it. Spiritually mature people, if they're going to contract it, that sentence, and they're going to tell part of it, you know what they do? They tell the last half. I was with a pastor who was uh, in California. He had murdered somebody when he was 15 years old. Killed somebody. He was, he was involved in a gang. It was a gang-related, a drug-related uh, uh, murder, and he killed somebody. And uh, they tried him as an adult. He was 15. And he, he served a long sentence. How many years was he? Six, 16 years? He was in prison 16 years. And then right before Governor Schwarzenegger at the time got out, he commuted his sentence because he said he should have never been tried as an adult. He was a kid. And so he let him out. Well, this part of the story that you don't know is he became a Christian, scared to death in prison because rival gang members were in the prison he was in and he was being beat up all the time and all that kind of thing. He's a kid. He's 15. So a chaplain came in and led him to the Lord. And he was so on fire for Jesus that he started assisting the chaplain as a 16-year-old, and he did it until he was in his 30s. When he finally got out, or late 20s, or whenever it was when he got out, 16 years, you do the math. And then uh, he was visited a lot by people in the Free Methodist Church, just like what you go to. People were going and visiting him. And they were trying, they were meeting, having Bible studies with him. He got out, and uh, the pastor 
at that church, I happen to be going and preaching there. It's one of our large churches. So there's, you know, they have three services, about a thousand people in the church or whatever. And, and, uh, and the pastor said, we got this guy. He told me his story. And he said, he really believes God is calling to plant a church. And he's done in, in prison. He finished his bachelor's degree. He's working on his master's degree in uh, master's of divinity. He's trying to go through and, and, uh, and he wants to be a pastor. He wants to plant a church. And I said, okay, well, there's a long process, particularly if he's got murder in his background, but, you know, he's in good qualified uh, territory because David was a murderer and so was Moses. And there's a lot of people in the Bible that are pretty good people uh, that were saved by God's grace, right? So he said, well, we, w we won't take that necessarily out, but we have a lot of things uh, in consideration to see what God has done in his life and ensure that he's called and that he goes through all the stuff. So it took several years uh, to work through with him. But I told him, I said, so I'm preaching this morning. How will I know who he is? And uh, the pastor looked at me, Larry looked at me and said, oh, you'll know who he is. <laughs> and so I thought, okay. So I was in between second and third service, and I was getting ready for the third service. And this guy, I just dismissed everybody, this guy comes walking down. His pants are real high. His He's got red, bright red or orange shoes and a lime green shirt with a jacket that didn't fit him. It went down way too far. It looked like it had been picked up maybe at Goodwill from somebody who was a giant. And uh, this guy is like 6'3 or something. He's pretty tall himself. And he came up there and he just stormed up. I mean, just like he was going to come up and accost me. And he, and he walked up, and he looked at me, and he, called, he said, man of God, that's what he called me. You just call me pastor, that's fine. You, know, you don't have to do that after the service. He said, man of God. He said, God has called me, and he said, I want, you, I want a double portion of your blessing. You know, he's using the word of Elisha from Elijah. And he got down on his knees, and he grabbed my hands and put them on his head. Thought, <laughs> so I prayed for him, and... Uh, Long story short, he's, he's written a book. He's a pastor of one of our churches now. It's one of the fastest growing multicultural, multiracial churches in America. He's been in uh, Christianity Today and stuff. People ask him to speak all over the world. Uh, he's been to Asia. He's been, I think, to Africa and Europe and different places. And uh, I kind of mentor, he would refer to me as his mentor. I've been coaching him along for a number of years. So somebody, I overheard a conversation at our general conference recently and I overheard them, and, and here's what he said. Somebody came up to him and said, so how did you do this? I mean, because they lead a lot of people to faith in Christ. And so they started the, this church, and the Lord just opened up a door for them to get a facility, a big facility. And, uh, and this church essentially, you know, gave them a real good deal on this church, and he kind of took it over, and, and then he started... They filled up, and so rather than having more services, he decided to start another campus. So he started another campus, and then another campus, then he started something in Texas, and then in Northern California, and then other campuses around. So now he's got about seven regional campuses down in that area. In fact, he called me up when I retired as a bishop. He said, Bishop, he said, I think the Lord wants us to plant 1,000 churches. And he said, I want you to lead our effort. <laughs> I said, I'll pray for you. So... Uh, <laughs> So he was, he was at this meeting I was at with these other pastors, and Brian is his name. Brian, this guy came up and said, 
you're incredible. You've done this, and you've done this, and you've done this, and the Lord is taking you from this place, and he has his anointing on you. And by the way, God has his anointing on him. I get blessed every time I hear him speak. But he said, you've done all of these things. He says, and Brian just stopped him. He said, no. And he contracted that same verse. You know what he said? He said, it's through him who gives me strength. He didn't even... He didn't even try to use the first line there. See, more mature people, they go to the second half. No, no, it wasn't me. It was the Lord. That was Brian's way of saying, I can't, but God can. So I have another friend, and he's the last friend I'll tell you about because i got lots of friends. But uh, his name is Jimmy Tsai. He's a good friend of mine and a good friend of these two ladies sitting right in front because he's from Taiwan and they're from Taiwan, and I've known these two ladies since about 1991, I think, and I've known Jimmy since about 1985, so I've known him a long time. And Jimmy and I have partnered in ministries in other countries. I really won't elaborate on that, but uh, several places, not just Taiwan, but other places, and uh, Jimmy is one of the most godly, loving people that I know that has a passion for people to find Christ. And if you go up to him, like I did once, and I said, Jimmy, I think of all the people I've ever met in my life, you have influenced more people to become pastors or come to Jesus through your teaching, through your ministry, through your preaching, through your leadership of anybody that I've ever met anywhere. And he said, this is what he said, I didn't do that. Jimmy was saying, I can't, but God, but there's a God. Here are the implications when we put the lie aside and we embrace the truth. Instead of it discouraging us and making us feel like we have self-limitations, it all of a sudden does something else. Number one, the first thing that it does is it removes that pride and that ego that I can do everything. You follow me? we got to get rid of that stuff. That's cancer. Reinhold Niebuhr said, I don't think there's any sin except for the sin of pride because you know, when a person, what's hatred? Somebody has gotten in your way, and so you want them disposed of. That, what is that? It's pride. What is greed? I want what's not rightfully mine because of what? You're fueling your pride, your ego, who you are. What's jealousy? It's pride to the core. What's envy? It's pride. What's lust? It's taking something that ain't yours, and you know, it's, it's desiring to have something that you should be satisfied with what you have, and you're not, etc. and so less kicks in. In other words, pride, he says, is, and what does saying, I can do everything, what does that do? That's the ultimate pride game. And when, when a person gets it right and says, I can't, but God can, all of a sudden it puts, if you were to talk to Brian, you would not sense an ego, you would sense a humble leader. When you talk to Jimmy Tsai, you don't have somebody doing this, flexing his muscles. He's somebody who's doing this and flexing the one muscle he should flex. So that's the first thing it does. It puts us in, in our right place. The second thing that it does is it then um, enlivens or emboldens our prayer and our faith because all of a sudden now we're not putting our faith in ourselves and we don't see that there's no reason to prayer. We see that there's a great need of prayer. In fact, I, the reason I mentioned Tim a little bit ago is he had no idea what I was preaching on, for the most part. But uh, four of the five songs that he sang basically said, I can't, but God can. 
the very last song, he says, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee, or what, isn't that how it goes? Okay. Uh, I, I'll remember it when we sing it. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, Lord, how I need thee. What is that statement? That's I can't, but God can we're going to acknowledge if we're going to acknowledge what all the hymns say there's tons of hymns that say the same thing I had about 15 of them running through my head this morning that I thought I could sing and then I came and I thought wait a minute we just sang it we just sang it so let's sing that so our culture says one thing but all of a sudden when we realize we really need God, what does that do to our prayer life? Our prayer life, all of a sudden we say, we need God. And so we become bolder, we become more active in it, it becomes more vibrant because we realize we can't accomplish anything without the Lord. Amen? And so we pray. What happens to our faith? All of a sudden when we take our faith and say, I can't, but God can, where does our faith go? All of a sudden, I meet a lot of people that say they're Christians, but they got almost no faith, a little bubble, and everything collapses. You know, I used to tell people that they could. I used to when I was a younger pastor. I stopped doing that about 20 years ago because it's ridiculous. So somebody would come to me, and they would say, I've got an addiction, and I can't get over it, and this, that, and the other, and I've, had, I've gone into treatment several times but I'm just living with this thing and the fear that I'm going to recidivism, I'm going to go back to it or whatever, and it's dominated so much of my life, et cetera. Can you help me? And I used to say, yes, I can. Da, 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 da. I stopped saying that. I said, I can't, um, but I can introduce you to somebody who can. I wasn't directing their faith toward me or to a program I was directing them to the Lord. And I can't tell you the number of people when I started doing that actually found the help they need. A woman comes to me and says, my husband left me, he's had an affair. You know, I, my kids are distraught. There's all kinds of problems in our family, etc. Can you fix this for me? Can you help me fix this? No, I can't. And I, they say, well, can I fix it? And I say, no, you can't. You can't make your husband come back. You can't make your husband love you. You can't make your children not hate their dad. Are, are you with me? Are you following me on this? I can, go, I can tell this story all day long, but we're about out of time here. So the whole issue is, I started telling people, no, you know, you're not going to be able to, even the prodigal father could not induce his child as loving and forgiving as he was, the son had to come back. There had to be something else happening to bring the son back. Do you follow? Even though the father was powerful. And I said, you know, I can't make your husband come back. I can't make him faithful. And, I can't, and you, there's no way you can make your children love their father again. I think you've got the idea. But I say, you know, let me sit down with you. And I remember a specific time where a woman was just very distraught and she's telling me this story. This is a number of years ago when I pastor in another church. And she said, you can't help me? I said, no. 
but Jesus can. And he's got the power to do it, and I want you to start by faith, and then whether your husband comes back or not, or your children become forgiving or not, God is going to fill you with a peace that passes understanding to where your future is not dominated or dictated by what somebody else says or what somebody else does. Your esteem is not based on your power or your ability to do it, but you're going to find yourself trusting God more and more and more and more if you can say, can't do it. So God, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. So as I leave you, uh, I think this is one of the most important things I can say to you, is we need more faith, and we need more prayer. But we're only going to have more faith and more prayer if we realize we need God. Because I can only do all things through him who gives me strength. Of course, the last element that, you know, the benefit of understanding this is not only do we, do we not put ourselves in the place of God and not only does it increase our power of prayer and, uh, and our faith as we trust in God instead of our own devices, instead of our own money, instead of our own influence or our own power, when we start trusting God, then all of a sudden, uh, something else happens, and that means we become the conduit to the one who can. We become the, the person who can introduce other people to uh, the God who can. And that's kind of what, uh, a little bit of what was, uh, this is a, also a small group kind of study, living and telling the good news. It's how to, how to then, if you understand your role and God's role, then all of a sudden you're in a place where you can put uh, the Lord in, in his place which is higher than anything else, and you can put yourself into his place, and then people are directed. People are directed to the one who can really help. It really helped me as a pastor to stop telling people, I can. But telling people, I can't. And you can't, but God can. I want you to stand with me as we get ready to close our service. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise. Lord, Obviously, it, it shocked me, I think, the first time I noticed in, in John's gospel in the fifth chapter that, that uh, you, Lord Jesus, said you can't do anything by yourself. You can only do what you see the Father doing. And Lord, it kind of puts us in our perspective, in perspective, and it puts us in our place, and it helps us understand that we need to follow your model, your lead, Jesus, that we can't do anything really without you of significance. So I pray, God, that your, your presence would be with us. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would acknowledge our limitations. We know that we can do everything through you who give us strength. Everything that needs to be done can be supplied by your power and by your strength, and I pray, God, that you would give it. I know there are people here right now, Lord, who are struggling in their faith. They don't, they've got very small faith, and I pray, Lord, that they would come to the place where they say they're not going to try and plan their life out. They're going to let you do that. They're not going to depend upon their own strength or their own wealth or anything else. They're going to, they're going to shift their, their faith and put it completely in your hands. I know there are people here that have been probably limited in their prayer life because they don't understand their desperation. I pray, Lord, you'd help us understand that we need you every hour. And so, Lord, I pray that our prayer life becomes alive turning to the one who can. Lord, I just think of Daniel's words. Uh, I'm not able, but there is a God. And Lord, I just pray that every day it's so evident 
that with us we know that there is a God who can heal us, who can help us, who can deliver us, who can give us strength to do the things that you want us to do. We'll give you thanks and praise. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.